Hey, welcome back to Discourse from the Big Chair. I'm Steve Cuff, and it's been a while, man. <laughs> Steve Coleman's here with me. Mr. Coleman, how are you? It's good. What have you been up to for the last three years? Oh, you know, just a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Uh, just waiting waiting for the Tears for Fears album to drop the new one. Just, just silently sitting in a room, waiting. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot going on. <laughs> nope. Got a while yet. I wonder if when we when we started this like five years ago, because it has been, it's been what? It's been five years, right? Yeah. We started in 2015. Yep. So when we started five years ago, did you think that in the year of our Lord 2020, well, one would be stuck inside because of a global pandemic, but also that we still wouldn't have a new Tears for Fears album? I didn't, but I also knew that it was a distinct possibility that we might not. Um, yeah. I would have thought we would have had it by 2016, 2017, and we almost got in 2017, but mm -hmm. uh, changes are afoot. Yeah. Well, I I, <laughs> I want to get a super cut of all the times at the end of the show when we, t when we talk about how we think it's finally going to happen, it's finally going to come out, and just, just, yeah, cut all that together. The oh. uh, discourse in the big chair embarrassment super cut. <laughs> Including from this episode. Mm -hmm. like we'll probably yep. be talking about the role of the Kings of Spain expanded box set in uh, <laughs> 2025 and say, oh, they're still working on it. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, or, or in 2027, when they'll finally put Everybody Loves a Happy Ending back on Spotify. And oh, we'll be excited about that. <laughs> at this point, that's all I want. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's it's ugly because not only is the album not on there, but. If you go to that greatest hits compilation that they put out, was that last year, two years ago, three years ago? I, I don't even know ago, anymore. The last time we sat yeah. down to talk about them. My God. See, time is flat at this point. I don't know anything. But the last time we talked about them and yeah, they put out that greatest hits album that is on Spotify. Uh, but I believe it's the final track is a cut from Everybody Loves a Happy Ending. And wouldn't you know, it's not on there. Yeah, you can't listen to it on there. Forget about it. Can't listen to it. But it's all like grayed out so you can see it. So you know it's supposed to be there. They're just like, no, you don't, you're not allowed to have that. You can't have that. It's a crime. So that's good. Truly uh, is. Truly is. You're robbing the, the world of uh, what I would say is their third best album. Um, but, you know, it's, it's damn good. It's great. And here we are just, just being robbed of that. What am I supposed to do when I'm at work? Actually do my job instead of listening to music? Come on. Uh, anyways, I guess we should, we should tell the people why we are back. And it's not just to speculate on when the new Tears for Fears album is going to come out. So why are we back here today, Stephen Coleman? We're back to celebrate 31 years of the Seeds of Love. And an That's right. impressive series of reissues. Uh, specifically, we're going to be talking about the Super Deluxe box set that just came out. Uh, you can stream it on Spotify. But if you've uh, got 80 bucks to spare and uh, you're, well, you're like me, I guess you're going to want to order the actual box set, which comes with four discs, uh, two of which have over 60 minutes of previously unreleased material. This is uh, holy grail stuff for anybody who's uh, at least a diehard Tears for Fears fan. A uh, huge peek behind the curtain that somebody like me has been waiting for for over half of my life. <laughs> that, that's no exaggeration. Yeah. Well, and I'm thinking if, if someone is listening to this episode right now, well, there's one of two scenarios. One, they're like, where is my usual optimism vaccine content? You guys don't talk about tears for fears. What are you, what are you doing? 
uh, hello, this has been around for five years. Come on, keep up. Get, get to the backlog a little bit. Uh, or two, you're a person who probably already owns this box set, maybe pre-ordered this box set or was eagerly anticipating it. So you know what's up. Uh, if you are new to the series, maybe maybe stop what you're doing right now and go back and, and listen through to some of the older episodes. But basically the concept here is Stephen Coleman, one of the biggest Tears for Fears fans in the universe, as far as I can tell. And when we started this project five years ago, for me, Tears for Fears was a band where I was just like, oh, yeah, they had those songs, Mad World and, you know, Head Over Heels. That's that's what they do. Shout. They did the shout song. And I didn't really know anything about them other than that. And so Stephen Coleman has led me on this journey, this Tears for Fears journey. And now I, too, count myself among the TFF fandom. So uh, it, it has been quite a journey for us. And I'm excited. I'm really excited to talk about this because... You know, Seeds of Love is an album that, listening back to our episode from years and years ago, I struggled with then, and to a degree, I still I still struggle with a little bit now. But it's such an interesting record from a production standpoint, uh, and and just the history behind it is super interesting as well. And it's just it seems like a miracle that we even got this album in the first place. Yeah, I mean, we're kind of going through the same process now where it'll be a miracle when we get the next one. Right, that's pretty much it. And it's, it feels like the same thing, right? Like they, they trashed it and then started again, trashed it again. It's crazy. Yeah, working with different producers and either maybe not firing them this time around, but just like going through all these motions just to get what they want. And yeah. probably not even knowing what they want. I don't. And the one thing immediately that's clear to me you know, with going back to the contest we had at the time in 1989 to what we know now as they're reflecting on it, like through these reissues, I don't think they had any idea in 1986 what this was going to turn out to be. Yeah. And there's a really interesting quote, actually, in an article that you gave me from, I think it was from Q Magazine, right? Mm-hmm. R.I.P. Is that right? R.I.P. R.I.P. to the Q. Uh, where... They're interviewing the band because I think the album's about to come out or it had just come out. And they're talking about the process and all the money they sunk into it. And all they they tried recording in this studio and that studio with this producer, with that producer and yada, yada, yada. And Roland Orswell has this quote where he says, you know, in order to create, I believe you have to destroy. And every single person aside from me and Kurt, he was like, they all want us to just keep riding this wave from uh, you know the, the hurting and songs in the big chair and and just kind of ride that pop wave, and he said he just he just wanted to completely blow it up and and start over again, and it really is amazing because every single Tears for Fears album is undeniably them, but you you do get a little bit of that of they just they they have this drive to still make amazing pop music but do it a little bit differently every single time they they can't be complacent in anything they do, and that really shines through on Seeds of Love, and in this deluxe edition specifically, we're lucky because we get to see them sort of work through that whole process. Um, you know, it's it's not like these songs just came out fully formed, and it's it's easy to forget that, I guess, when you're, when you're talking about music, you just think that like, oh yeah, they just instantly came up with this, and this is exactly what they thought. But here it's like, some of these songs, I don't even recognize them at all. Yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, it's weird to hear them so, like, f- completely unformed. 
and almost like in some ways, I don't want to say directionless, but uh, mm-hmm. I guess one specific example I give out right now is listening to like the townhouse jam of Woman in Chains and how that's like just a completely, I mean, the basic structure is there, but just like the major key change and the bridge and the break with the Phil Collins drum break, it's totally not there yet. And yeah. like how they got from that point to where it wound up getting is, uh, I mean, still a little bit of a mystery now, even though we have all this evidence. Mm-hmm. You know, when when I was listening back to our episode from five years ago when we originally did Seeds of Love, there was a, a point where you said that Seeds of Love is Tears for Fears' Steely Dan album, mm-hmm. which <laughs> that that really stuck with me because you you get that even more with this deluxe edition because Steely Dan famously they they would bring in just the best session musicians imaginable and that's how they would work through their material and it was this very like intricate highly produced glossy you know jazz rock and Seeds of Love has that same kind of glossy feel to it but you also you can you can kind of hear them just like working through different combinations of session musicians and just working through this process and it's it's so interesting because it's almost like this it's a very impersonal album in a way and it almost gets more impersonal hearing it in this context with all these different b-sides and demos yeah it's 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 been haunting me I'll be <laughs> <laughs> Um, just because it's like, it is again, that peek behind the curtain, but yeah, it just, uh, what I interpreted the final product as is definitely not how I will ever be able to interpret it again. Um, just because of finding the germs of where these ideas came from. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now are, are there, are there any songs in particular for you that really stuck out? Because for me, like I, I tried to go back, I listened to just the regular album straight through again, just to kind of refresh my palate here. And then I kind of went through and individually just went through each and every song that had multiple demo versions. Mm -hmm. And there's a few on here that just kind of blew me away. Some in terms of how much I did like them and others in terms of, of, of like, wow, this could have been a totally different album. Yeah. Well, I mean, is there a song you would like to start with? Yeah, can we can we start with You're the Knife? Absolutely. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of knife business going on in this uh, deluxe edition. So I, I think it's disc three because disc one is just the album remastered, uh, which is which is great. It sounds great. It sounds just as good, if not better, than it's ever sounded. Um, maybe it's because I own nicer headphones now, but I, I definitely was picking up on a lot more layers of sound in this album than I had previously. Uh, there's just there's a lot going on here a lot Um, but then you get into disc two and it's mostly like b-sides and some alternate versions but then you get into disc three and this is where things get a little you know all over the place and there's some stuff they dug out here that you kind of feel like you're you're seeing somebody naked and you're not supposed to you know what i mean like yeah (laughs) And you're the knife is the ultimate, like, I just saw Roland Orzabal with his pants off moment. Oh, um, God. This song, I don't know. They, it feels like they must have been working on this song in particular for, like, five years. It's gone through so many different variations. Um, it, yeah. So let, let's play a couple clips from this. 
the first version that we come across is it, it's like an overture. So it, it seems like this was probably supposed to be like the lead in to Seeds of Love, mm-hmm. presumably as an album. And then I guess this would go directly into uh, what, Woman in Chains, right? Is that Does that make sense? Yes, I, I think I don't know. it was started with the overture, which okay. I mean, I can tell a story about how when I first got the box set, I got it maybe two days before it was officially out and I finally had it delivered to my apartment. I went on a drive and I just put in disc three. And it starts with the Year of the Knife Overture, which up until I at least saw the track listing, I never knew that they were they had ever planned on making it this grandiose, like almost over the top thing. Um, yeah. Even though the entire record obviously is, but um, yeah, just the idea that they hired an orchestra <laughs> to record <laughs> an overture use. and they didn't use it, and then you wonder why this album cost like you know over a million pounds or whatever. Um, and then when it gets to, after the overture, there's another version, it's track two on disc three and Mm -hmm. it's year of the knife, early mix, uh, instrumental. And there's like these different chords that start the song out that are completely different from the album version. And Mm -hmm. I'm like driving around listening to it and (laughs) I started crying. Like it just kind of like it was weird. It and I started laughing at myself as I was crying. Yeah, so no. just looking like a total psychopath driving yeah. around, basically. Exactly. Good. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't like I was like I wasn't like sobbing or anything, but it was just like holy shit! Like I'm finally getting that peek behind the curtain. But I really liked the way that that chord progression begins the song, um, mm-hmm. and it moved me in a very different way. And I wound up listening to it in a way that I never have. And I've been listening to this album uh, for at least 20 years. Um, mm-hmm. I think the first time I heard it all the way through was probably like in 99. Um, and uh, so, yeah, having that experience was like, whoa, like this could have been amazing. And then right? the song goes on for another seven minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, let's listen to that little bit of the overture first. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cue that up real quick. Can you hear that okay? I don't know what this mix is like right now. We're very professional here. Yeah, I can hear it. <laughs> but yeah, this it's almost like cinematic in the way that it it, it starts out. It's it's kind of crazy. And then I'm going to fast forward a little bit, but... Yeah, it just kind of gets in this like <laughs> lush soundscape. A little bit more of that. Like really serious stuff here. It's like, yeah, Roland Orzabal scoring a, a Oscar award-winning film. That's kind of what you get from that. I just, and then you get into... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Keep going. I was, well, I was just going to say, and then, then you get into this other, like the alternate early mix uh, slash instrumental version, and you get this, which is a totally different thing. So now we're like fully synthesized instead of... You know, the, the orchestral thing. And then it gets into... There we go. Oh. So yeah, it goes from go. synthesized to all of a sudden this, like, just regular band playing, like, a very bombastic version of uh, American <laughs> Girl. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get like synthesized Tom Petty, basically. Which and, in the in the notes in the book, like Roland actually admits is like, hey, I like, originally tried to write this song as it was like at half tempo, sounded a little bit like Prince, but then at the same time, <laughs> I was a huge fan of Tom Petty's American Girl. And then Dave Bosco and the engineer and co-producers like, yeah, that was the basic inspiration. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, I had, wow, I had never really heard that until now, and now like makes perfect sense. Like, yeah, this is mm-hmm. uh, American Year of the Knife, girl. <laughs> it's, just, it's it's so wild to me just hearing that and then thinking about just what that song is, and it's a song that it never really stuck out to me that much. You know, like that that whole like second half of of Seeds of Love as an album, I just I feel like the first half is so strong, and and Year of the Knife just it, it never really hit me that hard. Um, but this is it's just so weird hearing it in a different way like that. I I don't know. Yeah, like I um, can't imagine like if the album had started like that. Like you're waiting in 1989, you've been waiting four years for the newest Tears for Fears album, and it starts with this overture and then this crazy ass like kind of like American rock song. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I think that would have blown everybody away. And I still am like half wishing like, Oh man, if they would have done it like that, that would have been just like such a huge statement. Yeah. Um, well, cause it has, as it stands now, I mean, you're the knife is it's the second to last song on the album. And it it's almost, seven minutes long. <laughs> it's like a kiss of death. Essentially. Like it just kind of gets buried in the record. Yeah, it just it goes on too long, even though like I've always thought that they clearly wanted it to be another single. And I mean, if you look mm-hmm. at all the remixes that are available in this box set, they clearly were trying to mix it into a single, even uh, recording some sort of like weird, like Madchester drums version of it. Oh, yeah, there's uh, I don't even know how many variations of Year of the Knife there are in here, which, again, is weird because you would think. I don't know, like sowing the seeds of love. I would assume that would have the most alternate mixes, but God, it's I, I feel like every disc is just five versions a year of the knife, basically. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's a clear example of like that's one track that they still feel like they never got quite right, and there were yep. all these versions where they really just tried desperately to get it done, and then to a larger degree, it just makes me wonder, like, well, didn't they have like any other? songs that they could work on like i'd always had been held myself to this myth that they just had piles of songs to work on Mm -hmm. over four years and they really didn't they had nine or ten songs uh rhythm of life which obviously didn't make it to the final cut of the album and maybe one other song um in the book, uh, Nikki Holland, who was the main songwriting partner for Roland Orzabal, talks about a song that he was working on called julian and he just like kind of just cast it away and since it's called julian mm-hmm. i'm guessing it's probably about his brother uh but yeah so they really just wanted to focus on like a very small set of songs mm-hmm. and i guess that's pretty similar to songs from the big chair but like they thought like these are it let's just go and i feel like not that your knife isn't not that it doesn't fit with the record but what else could they have maybe come up with if they just concentrated mm-hmm. more on writing material instead of just producing the hell out of these eight or nine songs? Yeah, yeah. It, it is an interesting approach because normally I feel like what bands do, especially when they release an album, it's like, oh, it's got eight songs on it or something. 
bands will write like, you know, 20, 30 songs and they just kind of whittle it down and they go, okay, this is the best 10. This is the best 12. This is the best whatever. And that's what you go with. And here it's, it seems like they just came to the table. Like you said, with 10 songs, they go, okay, we're going to use eight out of 10. And we're just going to just continuously produce and tweak these eight songs forever. Yeah. Basically it's, it's, that's wild. Absolutely wild. Um, yeah, it's, I don't know. It, it's, it's such a, strange way to consume a record too, to listen to it and then just hear all these alternate versions. It's, it's almost like, I wouldn't say it's changing my opinion of seeds of love, but it's, it's just a different way of looking at it. It's, it's making my complex relationship with this album even more complex. <laughs> oh yeah, me too. Um, hmm. to the point where I'm like, I go between like, Oh yeah, the final version of the album is the best they could have done to other moments where I'm just kind of almost like disappointed. <laughs> like, I feel like this could have still been a little bit better. And mm -hmm. I think with some of that, it's like the production for certain songs is right. Uh, I think in this instance, that would be the case for one of the first songs I wrote for this album, bad man song. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was, I was going to bring that one up next too, because well, let's, let's play the original a little bit just so people can kind of get an idea. But this is a very, I, I don't, it's, it's like a really like roots rock kind of traditional song in a lot of ways. Um, it's their biggest middle finger to their previous kind of synth driven pop music. It, it feels very like cowboy hat wearing <laughs> rock and roll. Like cheeseburger eating. Yeah. It's their most American sounding song, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's just, yeah, it's like this big bluesy riff and then Roland just belting out like, so this is what you get with that. And this little, uh, this little ditty in the beginning. I played this on a jukebox once some, and somebody was so disappointed that after this like intro that there was never a big drum solo. <laughs> and I kind of agreed. It's like, yeah, in this like eight and a half minute song, we're missing a drum solo somewhere. I, I just, I, I picture you putting this on, on on the jukebox and you're like snapping your fingers and like wearing white leather shoes or I, I don't even know. <laughs> well, it, <laughs> so it starts off like this and then and then we get into this big riff. Let's see if I can find it here. There we go. There you go. That's my. Do I sound like Roland Orzabal a little bit? You're pretty close, and you're making me think that maybe <laughs> Roland Orzabal inspired Eddie Vedder, Eddie Vedder more than we ever thought. Uh, there you go. That's got to be it. There is a <laughs> there's a quote in the book for the box set where uh, I think it's like the last quote where it's given to Roland, and he talks about reflecting on the album. He's like, "Yeah, well." At least we made like this quantum leap and uh, we made this album and it was like, hey, these guys don't sound like Depeche Mode. <laughs> and this is like that song is the prime example of that. Yeah, they sound like almost like an American band mm -hmm. or at least uh, like Little Feet. <laughs> yeah, Little Feet is it, that's a good comparison. Um, but yeah, if, if you want to convince people that you're not Depeche Mode, that's probably a pretty good way to do it. So uh, congratulations, guys. congratulations, guys. You did it. All right. So let's talk about a few of these alternate takes. Do you have a, a favorite from the many different bad man songs that we have available to us here, Stephen Coleman? Uh, we got to talk about the Langer Win Stanley version. 
Oh, we definitely do. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play a little clip of that before we even talk about it, just so we could soak it up here. Here we go. Okay, that noise. <laughs> Is it a dog barking or a tennis ball against a window? It's okay. So I'm. I don't know what it is, but it's been driving me crazy that because (laughs) I've heard it before and it's a very specific time period where it was like a thing. And clearly this is like part of that time period. And it has to be like some sort of preset on a Casio or something like that. But it's definitely been used in like movie soundtracks, maybe some other pop songs. It honestly reminds me of, um, of like Mario paint. Yeah. And in Mario Paint, you could like you could like do there's like a whole music thing section to that. And one of the music, I don't know if it was like the cloud or the the shoe or whatever, but you could select these different pictures and each picture would make a different song. So it's like, oh, you selected the chicken. So it goes when you click it. And this is like from that. I, I don't know what it is, but that's that's what it reminds me of. Yeah, it gave me a lot of memories of Super Mario Brothers 3, actually. It was like kind of like mm-hmm. that trash can steel drum sound, too. Um, yeah, it, and I think that it is just like this, like stamp of the period. This is this would have been recorded, I'm guessing late '86, early '87, um, when they mm-hmm. were with Clive Langer and Alan Winstanley, who were a production team that were very well known, very well revered. Uh, I think they were best known, at least in the UK, for re- producing all the Madness albums. Uh, they produced uh, Elvis Costello's Punch the Clock, which in the States, like every day I write the book, was one of his biggest hits. Mm-hmm. Uh, they produced uh, Dexy's Midnight Runners, uh, Come On Eileen. That's Langer and Winstanley. And these are mostly bands that don't dabble in electronics. Like they were live bands and that's how they were recorded. And when they got to Tears for Fears, it's just clear that they had this idea like, well, this is what you guys sound like. So... <laughs> I, I think when I texted you earlier, I told you it sounded like a Sega Genesis playing the music from the Weather Channel. Yeah, which I'm mm-hmm. gonna stand by that. That's I'm gonna I'm gonna play a little bit more of it just so people can get some more flavor from this version of Bad Man's song. This bass line, my God. Which I'm thinking that might be Kurt playing the bass. Actually, yeah, it's. Can you uh, skip ahead to uh, about three minutes and 40 seconds? Because there's a bridge that I actually kind of like. Three minutes and 40 seconds. You got it. All right. Let's see here. There we go. Oh, yeah. That marimba action going. Although I can't tell, like, what's a real instrument and what's, like, a synthesized version of the instrument. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I don't think anything yeah, but the bass go. and the guitar. See, so yeah, I kind of like that. Yeah, that's a fun, that's a fun little bridge. It's um, a totally different song, though. It's just like them just like fucking around, basically, which is fine. But it's not like I, I don't even know how it has the name Badman song attached to it because it doesn't sound like anything. To do with that, right? Yeah, but it's like the structure and the length is still there. Like, I can sing along mm. to it, and I still get the general feel. So, like, they still want, clearly, at, from 
the minute from the word go, they wanted this to be a song that grows. This is just like a four minute pop song. Um, mm. But it's weird because there's conflicting points of view. <laughs> um, if you get the Seeds of Love book in this box set, they both Roland and Kurt talk about how they just like really wanted to work with these guys, but their style of production didn't mesh with what they wanted to create in the studio. And apparently like Roland got into a lot of arguments with one of them about like a certain guitar sound. Like he, I mean, mm. that's the guitar sound we hear in the song, which is very muted. <laughs> you can yeah. hear it only in bits and bobs. And Kurt talks about like how they were trying to get them to go in this electronic uh, direction, which they was the total opposite of what they wanted to do. Like the whole point of like being mm-hmm. so inspired by Alita Adams, which may have been like a hindsight twenty twenty story at the end of all this, but like they saw her and it was inspiring to see somebody who could just perform and not have to like press play on the Revox machine and be stuck to that for an hour and a half every night. <laughs> on this like gigantic yeah. world tour um yeah so i guess like i theorize that like langer and winstanley came in they're like oh well tears for fears they're an electronic band this will give us a chance to help them be more electronic and it just it's the song sounds like 1987 threw up um <laughs> <laughs> and like i yeah. feel like in a weird way, I kind of like it, <laughs> but if this would have been the actual final product, like this would have been a major disappointment, and I think it would have um, really affected their legacy a bit more negatively. Um, yeah. And I'm glad they didn't go with it. Um, and I guess like Langer and Winstanley were like really disappointed that they were fired from the project. I think this is the only song they recorded with them. And apparently there's multiple <laughs> versions, but this is the only version that they're comfortable with, like, kind of showing, <laughs> which mm. I feel like it must have been a big fight to even get this on the box set. Um, but there's one interview, and it's just a one word or like a one line uh, reaction from Langer and Winstanley. It's not in the book, but if you go to the Super Deluxe website, um, they get like one quote from, I think, Clive Langer. Clive Langer and he's like well like we really if we ever wanted to change a drum sound ordinarily we'd work with live musicians and we could just have them record it in one take but when we tell Roland and Kurt like hey like we gotta like change this drum sound we need to add more hi-hat it would take them like four hours to program the Fairlight just to change (laughs) one sound so like I think there's frustration on the production team's part as well but Mm-hmm. But yeah, it clearly is the sound of a producers trying to make it sound like they think the band should sound. And I can yeah. easily see why they abandoned these sessions so quickly. It's And this is not a band that you can just like bend to your will either, clearly. Um, it, it's not going to work. And yeah, I and love that anecdote, though. That's so funny. Yeah. Just them like, hey, why don't we just track a new like drum sound here and just blah, blah. And they're like, nope, got a program for four hours. <laughs> but and even when they hired session musicians to just jam out all the time, they're still spending hours editing live samples. Um, mm-hmm. So with or without a machine, it was always kind of the same thing. Well, so they had to call their buddy Phil Collins to get him in to, to take care of business. Apparently, he only agreed to do it if he could do it within an afternoon. And like, that was it. 
and they were oh. trying to like get him to do that big uh, in the air tonight drum fill, and he just wouldn't do it. <laughs> like <laughs> they were still happy with up. the result, but like yeah, they didn't get that huge drum fill. And when you listen to Woman in Chains, obviously what he plays, I think works really well. But, oh yeah. Um, yeah, it wasn't quite as huge as in the air tonight. But what is? Mm-hmm. Wasn't yeah. Nothing. Nothing is. That's as big as it gets. And brief aside, did you see what's going on with Phil Collins right now? His his ex wife or current wife got married in their house while they were going through a divorce or while they weren't divorced. I have no idea. Yeah. Um, so he got he got divorced in two thousand six, and then in like two thousand sixteen, I think he got back with his ex wife. Don't believe they remarried, but anyways. They broke up again uh, in the last year or so, and then she ran off and got married to some young dude and then, like, went to Phil Collins' Miami house and just took it over, and then they hired bodyguards to guard it. So now Phil Collins is freaking out because he thinks they're, like, destroying his trophies and no one will come in and tell her to leave the house because she's got a bunch of guys with guns there. So pretty cool stuff going on in Phil Collins' life right now. Jeez. Hey, should should have played a bigger drum fill on Women in Chains. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. That would have changed everything. But no, he had to he had to scurry away so he could go make I can't dance with Genesis, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> All right. Uh another thing I want to talk about a little bit is these townhouse live jam sessions. Mm-hmm. These are all at the end of, of disc four, I believe. What exactly are these? What is a townhouse live jam session? Uh, so townhouse is this major studio in London, and I think it was just a, a way for uh, specifically Roland, because Kurt at this point, I mean, he's really not around. Like he's he's basically a member of the band in name only. He's not playing on anything. He's going through a divorce at this point. So he's like living in New York while like Roland's over in the UK. And I think, Mm -hmm. and this is just speculation on my part, but like in order to convince him to keep recording and finally get the album done at some point in 88, they get all these session musicians into the studio just to jam these songs live and just Mm -hmm. kind of record them live to tape, record different versions of the songs and then wind up editing them later. Um, and that's so these jam sessions are the nucleus of like at least like woman in chains standing on the corner of the third world um what am i forgetting there's one more jam that they uh, can play uh, bad so man there's song. woman in chains yeah bad man song yeah, broken bad man song was huge for that too um mm-hmm. and then i think just for this box it's just kind of like to show Examples of how much fun they were having playing in the studio. Um, yeah. Which you hear them uh, cover uh, all day and all night. <laughs> um, that, yeah, that's a little unexpected, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, it, it gives you an idea of like, especially like for Woman in Chains, a bad man song, like how these songs started out and morphed into what they became. And even like when they're jamming out to Badman's song, it still has that Langer Winstanley element to it. Mm-hmm. It's those weird, like minor chords that keep playing, like the dung, 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 which are 
completely gone by the time it's uh, finally recorded in its final form. Yeah. It was redundant. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Good self-edit, Mr. Coleman. And, you know, for years, I mean, even they talk about it in that article from Q Magazine from 1989 about how these sessions are when they finally felt like they were getting the feel for the album they wanted, that finally things were coming together. They were able to produce it on their own with Dave Boscombe. And then after these sessions and after they're feeling very invigorated, they just spent pretty much another year and a half just editing the sessions <laughs> for the mm -hmm. final versions of the songs. And then like adding in overdubs from whatever session musicians they hired. Uh, yeah. Like, like most notably like Badman song, like they had a uh, Robbie McIntosh who played guitar for Paul McCartney come in and play slide guitar. Oh. Um, it's just going through the Rolodex, getting all the famous people they can to come in for like an hour and just yeah. <laughs> drop some spots in. Well, they talk about in the book, they talk about John Hassel, um, which he's a pretty famous, uh, like almost like avant-garde trumpet player, worked a lot with uh, the Talking Heads and Brian Eno. And they flew him in to do like his like avant-garde trumpet stuff. And they didn't even use it. They just like played his regular trumpet tracks and put those on the album, even though I think John Hassel always specified like, Hey, like I got to play my trumpet through this wacky little device that I use. And they didn't even use that. They just like had him play trumpet on a track that anybody could have played trumpet to. But yeah. Because, anybody could have done that. <laughs> yeah. And even in the book, they say like, it's ridiculous that we like flew him out just to do this, but that's just like how much, access they had to these mm -hmm. like world-class musicians uh but yeah the john hassel thing just like i thought was hilarious mm -hmm. well and this this album is always like its legacy i think is it's always been so big and so bold and over the top and kind of a huge departure from some of their earlier work um but it, it's it's kind of had that legacy that it's just it's almost too much for a lot of people and it was obviously not as successful as Songs in the Big Chair, but still really successful. But, you know, listening to the stories that you're telling and then diving into these these demos and these B-sides and really getting the history behind the album, it's almost like farcical. It feels like like a movie. You know what I mean? Like the the part in the in the band biopic where, you know, oh, they, they had the successful album, now they have endless money and they could spend it on whatever they want and it's taking them forever in the studio and it's it's almost like Spinal Tap-esque, you know? It's like, oh, we can't get this drum sound right. Somebody call Phil Collins, just get him in here for the afternoon, you yeah. know? Well, even like, uh, maybe this is like a slightly deeper cut but a little more contemporary, uh, the Dewey Cox movie that came out mm -hmm. uh, 10 years ago yeah. with uh, uh, yeah, 2007 maybe? Oh, man. Yeah. But yeah, there's that whole period where he goes through like his Brian Wilson period, and this is clearly like Roland Orzabal. I mean, this is adjacent to uh, the Brian Wilson period for Tears for Fears, and I think um, mm -hmm. you know in the reissue, Roland talks about a lot, a lot about how he was in therapy at this point, and he would just come to like these like townhouse jam sessions, and he would just like throw all of his energy into these jam sessions, and uh, mm -hmm. obviously threw a lot of it into his writing. That's how we got. Release a song, Woman in Chains, which is essentially a song. It's a song that's about feminism and it's also about like his mother and just society at large embracing feminist ideals. Um, so I don't want to like <laughs> say like because he was in therapy, it was his Brian Wilson period because it wasn't like he was like 
in his bedroom gaining 300 pounds. But, yeah, or playing piano in a sandbox. <laughs> but like there's that element of like just getting so in touch with your psyche and it just creating, helping you create. Um, and that's something I don't think that I, I know hasn't been shared that much until until now. So that adds a little bit more context to it. And also like this idea that, yeah, they'd worked on it for so long, but they could kind of get away with not having to finish it. I mean, you live, you're living a life of luxury for the better part of mm -hmm. three or four years where you can just like hire all these world-class musicians that are probably better than you and you can just play with them for hours and yeah. burn studio time and just have the time of your life because you like playing music and you like going out to fancy dinners afterwards and just like talking about ideas. And then once the album's out, you really can't do that again until you start the process over again. Mm -hmm. So I could see why you would be comfortable. I mean... Oh, yeah. Why not milk it? I mean, because at this point, Songs from the Big Chair sold, what, like 10 million albums, something like that, mm -hmm. in sales, somewhere in that neighborhood. And so how many times in your life, if you're in a band, a successful band even, are you going to sell that many records? And the answer is once if you're super, super lucky, but what are the chances of lightning striking twice? And uh, chances are pretty low. So if your record label is, is giving you a blank check to just, like you said, burn everything down that you did before, really push yourself creatively and do whatever you want to do. Yeah, I'd, I'd drag that out for years too. Are you kidding me? <laughs> especially yeah, I if mean, I wasn't completely happy with what I was doing. I mean, especially these guys, these are essentially just like, two kids who grew up poor and just happened to be talented enough to really make it. And they never, I, they clearly never had like a thirst to be celebrities in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's just make the most of it. Um, yeah. And I mean, I guess in some ways that makes it a really cool story, but uh but in a way, it's also kind of like, man, like, you really took advantage of the situation. Um, yeah, I suppose to a degree. But, I mean, that, like you said, too, there's there's a lot going on with them, so I can see why these these demos and these B-sides, they feel all over, all over the place, because not only were they trying to find a sound and work through things, but obviously they're working through stuff in, in their personal lives. And a couple weeks ago, when we were talking about doing this episode you mentioned the the conflict in the band because obviously Kurt, he wasn't really that present. He didn't record on a lot of these tracks and he was going through some shit. Uh, what, what were you telling me about when, when they were on tour for this album and, and they sort of like broke into factions or something? Oh, yeah. So this was just revealed. Um, so Kurt, at once they finished recording the album, mixed it and everything... I think right as it was, right before they officially released it, he just said, hey, uh, after we finish the promotion, we finish the tour, I'm, I'm done. I can't be in the band anymore. Like, I'm moving to New York. There's no way we can make this, like, bi-coastal thing work if I'm in New York and you're still in England. Like, I'm done. Uh, hmm. And I think initially it was like they were, like, at least Roland was like, okay, I get it. That's, that's fine. But by the time the tour starts, they're just, like, resenting each other. And, yeah, breaking off into factions. 
uh, to this point where, according to Roland, like they're like members of the touring band that would get that would like start this click up with Kurt, and they would have these T-shirts made <laughs> that said BBC, which stands for Bad Boys Club. <laughs> and, uh, is there anything less bad boy than Kurt Smith? <laughs> I, Man, you made Soul on board. You're not a bad boy. I love you to death. You're not a bad boy. <laughs> I'm just imagining, like, touring the world and just, like, being so, like, not, like, petty, but just, like, having to, like, live with that. And it reminds me so much of, like, if I can go on a weird deviation, it reminds me so much of, like, pro wrestling. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's always this story about how in the late 90s you had these wrestlers like you had Shawn Michaels, Kevin Nash and Scott Hall they were known as the Click and they were routinely known for like being they were always the most successful wrestlers but they were always known for routinely like using politics to like get their way to the top and like get in the boss's ear and so another group of wrestlers started this thing called the Bone Street Crew <laughs> and <laughs> I always think of Kurt Smith as like in the Bone Street Crew like just kind of fed up with having to deal with the click and I guess Roland Orzabal's the click because he's the shining star uh, at this point yeah. but also he clearly put in all the work <laughs> yeah yeah so you got yeah Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith just beefing and <laughs> just I just see like like Kurt rolls up and he's got his BBC shirt on and he's with his boys and they all got leather jackets and sunglasses and Roland just goes Come on, Oletta, we don't need them. Walk off into the distance. (laughs) Oh, my God. And I'm sure they look back at that now and just realize how ridiculous it all was. Like, God, how goofy is that? I mean, I hope so. Although, if and when we get a chance to see them, well, anybody tour at this point, Mm. um, I'm like half tempted to make BBC t-shirts. Oh my God, you, me, front row at Tears for Fears with BBC t-shirts. How would that go over? I would like to know. sunglasses the whole show. The whole show with our arms crossed, just kind of staring them down and nodding. (laughs) (laughs) Speaking of like Kurt's contributions to Seeds of Love, his biggest contribution obviously is for the single advice for the young at heart. Mm -hmm. I'd kind of like to talk about the demo for that song. Yeah, uh, let me... uh, let me load it up here on disc four, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. All and right, here we go. This is uh, something I've been wanting to hear ever since I heard it was a rumor that it even existed, that there was a tape somewhere of Roland Orsbull singing lead on Advice for the Young at Heart. All right, here we go. Well. You know, it almost works, except, I don't know, like, there's something in Roland's voice where his, his, his voice is great, don't get me wrong, but it's much more theatrical, whereas Kurt feels a little bit more subdued, uh, and I just, I just feel like it, it fits thematically with the song better when Kurt sings it, but the other thing that's driving me nuts in this is, you can hear it. There it is. They do this thing where it sounds like when he's hitting the hi-hat, it sounds like they're looping it back in reverse. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just this really weird hi-hat sound that 
I, I can't put my finger on it, but it drives me nuts. And it, it's one of those things where kind of like the uh, uh, sound, sound in uh, what is a bad, bad song. <laughs> it's all I can focus on when I hear this, because it's like the initial shock of like, oh, Roland's singing this. And then all of a sudden you're like, what? what, what I, I can't I can't deal with the symbol. Yeah, what? well, it's definitely like a bedroom Fairlight recording. Uh, mm-hmm. But like I kind of it makes me long for like it has still has like a little bit of an edge to it. I think if they just like cleaned it up and like mixed it a little bit, like I'd probably prefer mm-hmm. this version over the final standard Ooh. version. Um, I think, and they talk about this again in the book about how they're both like not too happy with how advice for the young at heart turned out in its final version. Like they just thought it was too, or at least now think that it's too middle of the road. Mm-hmm. Which I agree with, although now I think it's kind of like gotten a new appreciation for being this like sophisticated song. Yeah. And now that there's more, I guess, like indie bands out there exploring that sound, like now Advice for the Younger Heart is kind of getting the second life. But I, I can agree with that and like that they wish it had a little bit more edge to it. But by the time they were recording, it was like one of the last songs they recorded. And they'd been mm-hmm. recording it for so long that they were just finally like, oh, whatever, fine, just this works, let's just get it done. <laughs> and uh, yeah. they talk about the bridge in the final version where there's like this maracas and bongo section where there's like a so- guitar solo. And they talk, Roland specifically says in the book, he's like, yeah, I never liked that part. I think even though it's like <laughs> him playing guitar, he's like, Chris Hughes like made me like do this like steely Dan thing and it doesn't work. And even when we play the song live now, we've cut that part out entirely, which is true. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's like that whole bridge is just gone, Um, which actually I don't mind the bridge, but maybe it is because it reminds me of something from Asia. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. It kind of, it kind of does sound, it's got some steely Dan vibes. I mean, there's, there's steely Dan vibes going through this whole record. Let's, let's be honest here, but um, yeah, it, it's so funny because now you listen to bands like Destroyer and you hear so much of this album really, or this era of music, but specifically this era of tears for fears and in what he's doing. (laughs) So yeah, it is funny that they're like, Oh, we don't like advice for the young and hard. It's middle of the road, but it's, it's been just sort of ingrained to contemporary indie pop music. So now it's kind of cool, I guess. Yeah. Which I never would have thought was the case. Um, but yeah, and you know, I my dad still very much likes it, <laughs> so <laughs> I always feel a little bad if I'm uh, not that I'm ever trashing it because I still think it's a great song. But I've always been like wanted just a little bit more of like a rougher cut of it, um, mm-hmm. something a little less polished. Yeah, well, and that's one of the nice things about this set too is it is such a a polished kind of lush album that hearing some of these songs really rough and raw to the point where a, a few of these tracks almost sound like they're dipping into the red a little bit like there's almost a little like natural distortion when they're recording and it, like hearing that on these songs it's so so weird because you just used to all that polish and yeah this is not that <laughs> like with uh, swords and knives which uh i definitely prefer the demo version to the album version um and i think like there's just something very 
haunting about the demo that again like had it just been like mixed and cleaned up a little bit they probably could have just released that that would have been like a definite like what the fuck moment on the record yeah and just kept it to like three and a half minutes and so like the album version which i've always kind of liked but have grown out of a little bit mm-hmm. like hearing the I demo it- you can hear like that weird like synths like these string stabs that are from a synthesizer that just kind of come out of nowhere yeah no, I, I like this better too because it does. It has kind of like a haunting quality to it, and that's the part of Tears for Fears that I, I wish they would have dug into a little bit more. And you hear it a little here, and then obviously I I, I can't I can't go without bringing up the prisoner. So uh. oh yeah, this <laughs> like this demo especially definitely has like hurting vibes to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I kind of I miss that era honestly, and I wish they would have maybe explored that that dark side of their music a little bit more uh not that the hurting isn't a dark album in places but um I, I guess industrial is is a better way of describing it but this is almost different it's just this like cold icy bleak distant pop music and it's it's cool and it's another track that in its demo form specifically just sounds like it's predating indie pop music 30 years later it's yeah. it's so weird to hear um but just 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 another uh, case of Tears of Fears being ahead of their time. No big deal, you know. That's just it's kind of their thing. Uh, they do discuss the final version of Swords and Knives on the album, where how they basically admits like, yeah, we just kind of like bloated it up because we could. Like we found this like cool like Pink Floyd reverse guitar effect, and we just added like a two minute bridge to the song, even though we probably didn't need it. But no, a lot of these tracks probably didn't need it. I mean, what? How how long is Swords and Knives? It's over six minutes long. They're like, yeah, this needs another two minutes of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, if they would have just dropped that in as like a three and a half minute track, like I thought, I think that would have been even better. Um, Mm -hmm. But I mean, obviously it's too late for that, but. Yeah. Oh, well. So I, I guess my final question for you with this is, would you recommend that people pick this album up? And I guess if you're a super fan, you're getting it no matter what. But what's what's the value to the average fan, the, the layman like myself, Mr. Coleman? Well, I think if you're a fan of, um, even if you're just a fan of songs from the big chair, like this is at least worth your investigation. Um, just to experience that like quantum leap. <laughs> Of like how much a band can change from their most successful record to just like instead of like maintaining the status quo, just taking a not even a sharp left turn, just like completely jumping off the planet. And uh, it, I think, holds up better than I ever thought it would. Um, even five years ago, I wouldn't have said that, but I think it's always going to be a very interesting listen. It might be a challenging listen, but. There's a lot of uh, a lot of cool stuff to discover. Um, and if you get the box set, you get the 5.1 stereo mix, which I haven't had the advantage of listening to yet. Um, but uh, if you have that ability, I'm sure that would be an amazing experience uh, to listen to it mm-hmm. that way. Which yeah, I will. It, if you got a fancy stereo, this probably sounds amazing. Um, I unfortunately do not. I have a I have a set of reasonably okay bookshelf speakers. And that's about it. So I'm not set up to experience this in its full glory. Plus, I'm streaming it from Spotify right now. So 
Uh, it sounds compressed as hell, but you know, that's how it is. Oh, and before we wrap things up, I did want to talk about famous last words just to bring up the fact that they approached Tom Waits to sing the song. <laughs> and I'll never hear that song the same again either because I'll always imagine Tom Waits singing When the saints go marching in That's my best Tom Waits <laughs> I just, I need to I need to experience what this would be like Melting your arms Melting your arms As the day Wow. Uh, Roland Kurt, if you guys are listening, call us up. We'll, uh, we, we'll work for half yeah, the rate that Tom the Waits take. would work for. <laughs> and, like, I, <laughs> I hate that I don't have a cooler example, but it reminds me of when you 2 <laughs> had Johnny Cash sing a song for them. That also oh. closed out the record, closed out the uh, Zeropa album. Um, like, I don't know how I would have felt if I had been listening to a Tears for Fears record and the last song. And maybe they didn't want him to sing the entire song, but like all of a sudden mm-hmm. Tom Waits comes up singing on a Tears for Fears album. Like, that would have been a huge risk <laughs> for a pop yeah. band, uh, especially as popular as they were, uh, which is why I'm sure Tom Waits said no. Like, even in the book, Roland Orsbull is like, yeah, we asked Tom Waits, and he was like, Tears for Fears, fuck off. <laughs> Tom Waits doesn't actually talk like that, but I might. Uh, and I think, like at the time too, by the time they probably got around to asking him, he's like just finished doing these Jim Jarmusch movies, and he's in the middle of doing a uh, was it the Rain Dogs album? Mm-hmm. That was like pretty uh, one of his like big artistic statements in the late '80s, like his comeback album in a way. Downtown Train which is a great yeah. song, even after Rod Stewart kind of ruined it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess it probably wasn't the right time for him, but God, that that's the lost track that I want. I just like, I need an alternate universe where he says yes, and even if it doesn't make the album, I just I just need that cut. I need uh, it. Well, and it would have given uh, TFF so much street cred, too. Like, my God. <laughs> yeah. uh, if they would have gotten Tom Waits to sing on their uh, record. Um, God, even though, if, if that track exists anywhere, if someone gives it to me, I'll get a Tears for Fears face tattoo. It just That's my level of dedication. And maybe Tom <laughs> I just wanted to be real. Like, he had to be cool and just say, like, no, nah, fuck them. But then, like, he buys the album, like, a year later, sings it alone in his apartment, and he's crying. Mm-hmm. And then he yeah. writes a song about that because that sounds like a Tom Waits song. <laughs> that sounds like a total, yeah, that, that'd be a total move on his part. Also, the idea of Tom Waits crying and what that sounds like is cool to me. It's just like, <laughs> <laughs> he's, he just, he's like a nervous cookie monster. I love him. Uh, okay, well, <laughs> I guess, I guess we'll wrap this episode up sort of like we have basically every episode, which is Stephen Coleman. Do you believe that we will get a new Tears for Fears album by the end of this year? By the end of this year? Uh, hell no. <laughs> um, no, no. How about 2021? How's that looking for you? Uh, I feel slightly more optimistic. So uh, for those who are maybe fans, go on to like the Tears for Fears message boards on social media and all that. They're not message boards anymore. They're groups. What is this, 1999 Yahoo? Um, they're on Facebook groups. Go, go so in the whatever. Yahoo chat room, uh, TFF chat. 
it sounds like me at about 14 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, so Roland Orzabal did an interview just a few weeks ago with uh, Virgin Radio in the UK to hype up the release of the box set. The interview isn't like that um, groundbreaking. He just kind of treads the same ground you, he normally would just talking about the history of the band. But they start talking about the Seeds of Love album. He's like, oh, yeah, it took us four years to make it, which sounds like a long time back then. But now, since we've been working on this record for seven years, four years sounds like a pretty short amount of time. Yeah, no shit. Um, but at the end of the interview, the interviewer presses him. And I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the guy who interviewed him. But he presses him. He's like, all right, Roland, so you said you're working on a new album. What's the story? Are we still getting a new record? And he talked about how like they had an album ready. And they, had, they started working on material seven years ago. And management was kind of like, yeah, this stuff's a little too out of the box. It's a little too weird. Uh, we're going to have you uh, team up with a bunch of like heavyweight songwriters and producers and see if we can get like a couple hits. So he mm-hmm. called it like record producer speed dating. And they met in, met up with all these high profile producers. I even remember at one point, they never confirmed it, but they were working with like Jackknife Lee at some point. Um, and I don't think any of that material is going to see the light of day. But they wound up the guy they wound up working with the most is this guy, Sasha Scarbeck, who is known for working with Adele. Uh, he wrote the song Wrecking Ball by Miley Cyrus. So it's weird to hear them working with like these like big time pop producers. Um, and it clearly he said like it just didn't work for them. Like they he and Kurt wound up listening to the album and it just didn't sound like them. It sounded like them trying to sound like other people. Um, mm-hmm. Even with uh, I Love You But I'm Lost, their last new song that they released three years ago. I mean, yeah, it sounded like Bastille, which is fine if you're Bastille. But yeah, uh, yeah it just it lost a little bit of that edge. It just sounded like a contemporary pop song. And... If anything, we've learned from the Seas of Love experience, Tears for Fears, even though they were contemporary pop stars, they were never really a contemporary pop band. Uh, they're not producible. They've never been producible, unless it's like Chris no. Hughes. And um, they've never sounded like anybody else. They've always just sounded like themselves in various different incarnations. Yeah. I mean, you can say sewing the Seas of Love is like a Beatles pastiche, but it's still clearly Tears for Fears. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess now they're back to the drawing board again, but where they're going to keep five songs from those sessions because they still like them because they're really good songs and that they're working on like five other songs that are like more like dramatic Tears for Fear songs, like kind of what you would come to expect. Um, mm-hmm. And that they're feeling really good about it. They hope to have them done by the end of the year. But he also says that he's said that before many times <laughs> but oh yeah i feel optimistic that at the very least if we have to keep waiting at least it's going to be a record that they want to do i f- know at the time what we've talked about in the past like i probably feigned a little bit of excitement when it's like oh they're working with all these like hot shot producers and like i look back at their history and like i've only m- Everything they've done, they've pretty much done themselves. I mean, yes, Chris Hughes was the only credited producer on their first two records, but like 
they were so involved with the production. They basically have had cut of all of their albums until mm-hmm. this new one that they're working on now. And clearly it's not working. So, and he also mentioned how he wants to be able to play these songs live and he has to enjoy them. So that's another great thing to hear. Like at least they're thinking they want to play songs that they enjoy and they want to play new material, but if they're just going to hit the sequencer to another version of everybody wants to rule the world played in a different key. I mean, that's not going to motivate them at all. So, and I don't want to see that as a fan. It's so wild to me too, that their record label would try to stick them with contemporary pop producers because we, you have to be kind of like honest with yourself of, of what tears for fears is at this point. And they're in a unique position. And I think a pretty good position wherein, they are a band that's getting a little bit older and the likelihood of them having a contemporary hit pop single, you know, 30 years after their last charting hit, it's very low. It's a very low chance of that. Okay. It's not, it's not going to happen, but they're not like a legacy act in the traditional sense. It's not like they're on the nostalgia circuit and that's all they do. They're, they're making interesting music. Even their last album, everybody loves a happy ending. That's, that's a, really really great original album but why would you try to to stick them with a pop producer and try and squeeze a hit out of them in 2020 you're not you're not going to get that you're going to get guys in their what are they 50s 60s however old they are you're going to get that playing like music for kids that are it could be their grandchildren that doesn't make any sense you're not going to get that let them do what they do best, which is make interesting pop music that Tears for Fears fans are going to buy, because that's what you're that's what you're going to get out of them. And so. if it's good enough and the right people hear it, it gets good reviews and it gains a following. And besides, I mean, you know, bands and music record labels like make money off of touuring now more than anything. Well, not right now, mm-hmm. but <laughs> yeah, well, eventually at like- some point again. God, like Bruce Hornsby has had a career resurgence in the last five years. Yeah. And it's not because he's got like number one smash hit singles on pop record stations. It's because he made interesting kind of weird music that he wanted to make. And it caught the attention of kind of like, uh, you know, like indie rock cool kid crowd. And that's how he's he's rebuilding his his persona, his image, and and reaching a totally new generation of fans is through that. So I would say Tears for Fears, Bruce Hornsby model, please. Yeah, go. not something I ever thought I would say. If 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 you talk to Steve from five years ago when we covered this album, I would not be saying anything about Bruce Hornsby. <laughs> <laughs> no, who who did legit like put out one of the best albums of the year last year? Uh, that nope, no joke. Zero is actually fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, yeah. So uh, are you saying they should call Justin Vernon? I, I guess so. Call up, call up that guy. Call him up. Uh, Mr. Bonavere, please get involved. Or I, just I, get rid of this Bastille guy or whatever. <laughs> I, bet, I mean, I bet he'd be thrilled to work with him, but I'm sure they oh, go yeah. to the cabin in Wisconsin and probably work on another version of woman in chains. <laughs> probably, probably. All right, Steve. Well, let's let's wrap this up. Uh, I I agree. I don't think we're going to get a new Tears for Fears album anytime soon, but I don't care. Uh, having fun doing this. I think we're going to try and do another episode sometime soon as well, where we're going to cover the Tears for Fears cover songs 
yep. and uh, go through those because there's, there's quite a few. I actually listened to one today by Japanese Breakfast, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, so, it's a fantastic cover. Already already doing my homework, man. So, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll have more episodes coming your way soon, uh, hopefully even more if you know we can go to concerts again or listen to new music again or anything joyful in life. We'll see. Now, if you're listening to this podcast right now, do us a big favor. If you click on the description of the podcast you are listening to, you will see a link to our iTunes page. Please tap that link. It will take you to a little spot where you can leave a review for this podcast. And I need you to give us a five-star written review. And I know that's that's a big ask because you have to, you have to hit the five stars and then you have to write, uh, I love Tears for Fears and both Steves are cool, handsome guys. But it will be worth it because the iTunes algorithm relies on you doing that, dear listener. And the more written five-star reviews we get, um, the more visibility we get and the more visibility we have, the more Tears for Fears content we can create for you. Also, someone had the audacity to give us a three-star review, and that just that breaks my heart. We're better than three stars. I'd say we're five. Four and a half, at least. Anyway, uh, there's another link in the description of this podcast, and that will take you to our Patreon page. So... I know we're in the middle of a global pandemic. I know times are tough, but if you have an extra couple of bucks to throw our way, be greatly appreciated. Uh, I mean, equipment is expensive. Uh, hosting a podcast is really expensive. All this stuff costs money. Uh, we're just trying to, to scrape together a little bit of cash so we can put out the best product humanly possible. We want to have an audio fidelity level that Roland Orzabal would not, you know, thumb his nose at, uh, which he's, he, he would probably do right now. So, yeah, if you got a couple extra bucks, uh, if you could throw that our way, we, we put out special content so you can access an archive of old podcasts uh, that gated content, old written articles, all kinds of stuff. Plus, we do new series, new content all the time. So, yeah, if you got a couple extra bucks, really appreciate it. Other than that, uh, yeah, if you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, optimismvaccine at gmail.com. That's optimismvaccine at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at us, at Optimism Vaccine. And, uh, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. So, yeah, let us know if there's anything else you want us to cover, too. Uh, we've pretty much exhausted everything at this point. But, uh, yeah, we're bringing it back. We're getting the band back together. This is our Everybody Loves a Happy Ending, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. We will uh, we'll see you next time. See you.